This is In Blue, a reptile podcast where we talk to some of your favorite reptile keepers, hoping to find out what they just can't live without. We want to bring you closer to some amazing people sharing their stories and experiences about life and the animals they love. Join us as we go deep in blue to shed what we know and gain a fresh new perspective about reptiles and their keepers. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Heidi. Welcome to In Blue Podcast. Today we are going to be joined by Chad Brown. Hey, Chad. Hi, Chad. Hello, ladies. How are you? Good. Welcome Doing great. To the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to right. it. Awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Wow. Uh, so, from a reptile perspective, uh, I am Chad Brown, uh, one of the founders of Pro Exotics Reptiles. Um, we were a, a business uh, that existed about 10 years ago. We were the, one of the largest captive producers of reptiles on, on the planet, produced thousands of baby reptiles every year, sold them all over the world. My, my former partner, Robin and Markle, and I were the founders of that company. Um, late uh, 2010, we shifted some of our focus to uh, the Reptile Report, which he now owns, and Ship Your Reptiles, which I now own, um, and uh, really grew those businesses into where they are today. Um, and so that's me from a reptile perspective in a nutshell. Before that, my previous life, I was a professional football player, played professional football for 15 seasons with the Steelers, the uh, Seahawks, and the Patriots. Uh, that was also a pretty fun ride as well. I bet. Yeah, we'll probably get into some of that. Okay. For sure. I, so um, how did you get into the shipping reptiles part of it? Well, when we had pro exotic reptiles, at least a couple of times a week, someone would send us a email saying, hey, I love reptiles. I want to start a reptile business. Um, and, you know, we would typically try to guide folks along a decent path. Hey, you might want to get just comfortable breeding reptiles and producing them and maybe selling some babies to your local pet store to your friends before you, you know, go ahead and get all formal with it, incorporating your business name and renting a space and all of that. Um, but some of those conversations literally went on for years with some of those are, of our customers. And towards the end of, you know, of that kind of training process and coaching people up, well, how do I start shipping reptiles? This was not too long after 9-11 and you need to be a known shipper. Well, how do you become a known shipper without being a known shipper? And it was one of those weird quandaries that a lot of folks in the retro uh, place were kind of put into after 9-11. So Rob and I put our heads together and thought, you know, we can really help people with this and really, you know, spend some time developing a, a business plan and uh, going through it on our own just to make sure there was some viability to it. And then had some conversations with our, our UPS rep and kind of move that up the ladder. And so eventually we got approval from UPS and we started our company in late 2010 uh, in hopes of helping others become more uh, accomplished and uh, confident shippers. That's very cool. So we we actually got into the industry somewhere around 2010, 12. So you guys weren't doing it for very much longer. You've just always been there. So I wasn't even really sure how long you guys had been doing it. So Yeah, I, we started uh, Pro Exotics Reptiles back in 1992. Um, like I said, so we were in the biz for a long time. But uh, yeah, we've been a staple in the hobby now for over 10 years. Uh, we have expanded from just ship your reptiles to 
ship your aquatics for folks who are in the aquatics hobby, ship your invertebrates for folks who are into bugs and all those creepy crawly things. And then soon to launch will be ship your flora who are folks who are into plants. So the, uh, the same model of you know, expedited shipping, expertise, uh, packaging to help you ship things that aren't necessarily easy to ship and provide you with all the know-how how on, on how to do all of that. So how did you get into the reptiles? Uh, I've always been an animal person uh, my entire life. I uh, enjoyed animals, had animals as, as pets. I grew up in Southern California, so I caught snakes and frogs and lizards in my backyard. Some of my uh, neighbors in this area of California had like little small like home farms with a couple of goats or a horse. There were neighbors who had peacocks. So I've kind of been exposed to uh, animals uh, on a very hands-on way in my entire life. So when I got into college, because my mother said no snakes in her house, I got my first boa constrictor um, from someone in the dorms. And as folks in the reptile hobby know, one snake tends to turn into two and two tends to turn into 10. Yeah. So um, I was in that phase when I met Cameron to Pedlin, who's now of Bushmaster Reptiles. Back then he was working at a local pet store in Boulder. And Cameron kind of took me uh, under his wing and took me to his house where he was breeding reptiles in his basement. And that would really kickstarted the reptile passion for me. I, like I said, I had animals before that. Um, and it was something I was certainly very interested in, but to realize there was more than just a hobby to this. There was an actual business and there was an opportunity for me to be entrepreneurial, which was you know, also part of my up, uh, upbringing growing up. Um, it was a perfect fit for me and, and my passion and where I wanted to go in life. Do you keep reptiles still? I do. I do. I've got uh, four green tree pythons. Um, I got one female okay. who's gravid currently, uh, one who just laid a couple of slugs and some eggs the other day. Um, I am working with rhino rat snakes. For those who are long timers in the hobby, know that Proexotics Reptile was one of the pioneers of that species 20 years ago. I found a friend who still had some of my original bloodlines. So I, I got uh, four rhino rat snakes that I'm working with just to kind of experience what I used to do in the past on a, on a mass scale. I've got a couple other projects as well. So I got about 20 animals here in the office at, at Shipping Reptiles where they have our own separate office and I get a chance to remove myself from the computer and the phones from time to time and go play with the animals like everyone else. Nice. And how many people are there? How many people do you have working for you? Uh, there's a total of nine on the staff. Um, only two, uh, including myself, well, three, including myself, are here every day. Uh, most of the staff does work remotely and we even have some staff in different states. So what happened to Pro Exotics? Well, um, we had a fire in late 2011, September 2011, we had a fire. Um, and at the time we had uh, two warehouses. Our offices and all our snakes were housed in one warehouse. Our lizards and our rodents and roaches and insects were housed in a second warehouse. We had a fire that destroyed our main warehouse. Um, and uh, thousands and thousands of animals died. It was uh, that time of year, uh, September, where you've got you know babies that you have hatched. Mm -hmm. You've got, in our case, hundreds and hundreds of eggs in the incubator. Uh, and you've got females who are still gravid. Um, so it was an awful, awful experience. I hope no one in the reptile hobby ever goes through. Um, and Robin and myself made the painful decision after about six months of just trying to get our feet back under us that we were not going to rebuild the animal part of our business. We were going to focus on some of the other things that we had going, like the reptile report and like ship your reptiles. Um, and in the end, um, 
I certainly miss those animals. I, I miss working with the animals every day. But uh, as you would guess from a former professional athlete, I'm a competitor. I like to compete. <laughs> and so reptiles became uh, an offshoot of that competitive spirit. And sometimes it was difficult for me to enjoy people's reptiles because I wanted to beat somebody to hatch that ball python morph. Or, hey, I made, you know, 400 different uh, versions of porphyracea rat snakes this year. That guy hatched 500? I hate that guy. I, that should have been me. <laughs> so that competitive spirit didn't allow me to enjoy others' reptiles like I do now. So uh, yes, I miss my animals. The fire was awful. It was tragic. Um, some animals or some morphs that I was working with, I had never released out to the public, and those genetics are gone forever. You know, at that time I was, you know, largest breeder of several species, and we had bred over seventy-five species and subspecies as our time as pro exotic reptiles. So we were very accomplished in what we did. Um, but it's great now to go visit other reptile people and literally just be able to go and enjoy them. So whether it's at a show and seeing their table and what they've had and what they have for sale, or I went and visited uh, Justin at Canova uh, two weeks ago and to walk around his facility and be happy for him and not be kind of jealous, kind of angry, kind of mad, kind of competitive. So uh, that's the, the good thing that came out of the fire. If it's possible to find a, you know, a silver lining in a dark cloud, like they say, that would be the silver lining as I get to enjoy everyone else's reptiles at a much greater level. Well, and you found something that is still reptile related that you could still stay in the industry and stay relevant in that way. But that's really kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So with, uh, you know, ship reptiles and with um, the reptile report, um, we were kind of became a, a, an umbrella over the entire hobby rather than just focus on one part of the hobby. I actually got to expand my interest into things that I didn't work with personally. You know, I wasn't a, a much of a frog guy, but now I enjoy frogs. I wasn't much of a axolotl guy. I've got axolotl shippers, so I enjoy those. And through uh, the Reptile Report, you know, I, we obviously try to highlight all the cool happenings in the reptile space. So getting a chance to dive into parts of the reptile hobby I wasn't familiar with before, or maybe weren't part of my focus when I was doing ball pythons and Asian rat snakes and monitors. Uh, again, it's really brought me a greater level of enjoyment. So how did you guys come up with the reptile report? Like, how did you decide? Well, how did you decide to do that in the first place? But. You know, it's always one of those, uh, it's always like that sliding door kind of thing sometimes with the inspiration for these things. Um, we were operating shipping reptiles at that point. And uh, at that time, reptile forums, um, I guess I'll age myself when I even just mentioned <laughs> reptile forums, um, were a big thing. You know, yeah. Facebook wasn't a thing then. Reptile nope. forums were big. So if you wanted to get reptile knowledge, you had to go to these forums. Yeah. And in the course of trying to run pro exotics reptiles and get shipping reptiles off the ground, we started to look to some of these reptile forums to see what folks were saying about our business and how we were operating and what we were doing and what their satisfaction was and all of that. But it was taking up a couple of hours of myself and my partner's time um, so we thought, why don't we hire somebody to go to these forums and grab all that shipping content and deliver it to us? Mm -hmm. um, and then I had the thought of, you know what? We should do one better. We should grab all the interesting content and all the interesting photos and post those up for everybody to see. Because there were great discussions going on in those forums. There was great yeah. photos um, yeah. that weren't you know, necessarily part of just kingsnake.com, which was the largest reptile forum at the time. 
So we were diving into the, the ginger babies form and all the, you know, the, the small frog form or the turtle form. So we were into all of those. So yeah, we turned that thought into a business that exists still to this day. Well, I love it. I follow it and I love reading all the stories and the articles. And I always wondered what, like, <laughs> who has time for all of that? But um, yeah, I always find it fascinating. So. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's always a, a fascinating read. If you're into reptiles, you can go to the reptile report and very quickly get up to speed. Whether it's U.S. Arc and legislative stuff, or you just want to see, you know, who hats the latest, greatest, coolest ball python. All that stuff is all there. And all kinds of other species. So I like I like it in the U.S. Arc post the most when it's not about ball pythons. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just I find it so interesting because you guys just post things about about reptiles that I've never even thought or heard of and i just i'm always in awe so it's a lot of work you know um i'm no longer involved in that company you know my partner and i we, we separated business interests but it was a lot of work we had a staff that like i said it would you know literally comb the reptile internet trying to find great interesting content um so uh tip of the cap to the staff and uh for robin at this point to you know keep that business model still going that's awesome so switching gears what did you go to college for uh, I went to college to play football. Um, you know, I think every <laughs> I think every athlete would say, "Oh no, I went to get an education." No, I went to play football. The education was was secondary, um, and I had a great football experience at the University of Colorado. We won a national championship when I was there, so a lot of team success. I had some personal success on the field. Was all American and you know all conference and all of that. Um, played with a lot of guys who end up, you know, being in the NFL. It was a great time to be a Colorado Buffalo. Um, so, yeah, I got out uh, of that college experience what I had hoped to get out of it. A lot of football, a lot of good football. So what did you get your degree in? Sociology. Um, <laughs> by the time I decided that, you know, I should either pursue business or I should pursue something in, in biology related to reptiles, mm -hmm. um, I hadn't taken enough to, of the prerequisites. You know, as a college athlete, a lot of times they kind of steer you into some things when you're unsure. And by the time I had a, a thought, this should be a path forward for me, I hadn't taken enough of the courses where I could graduate on time within the limits of my scholarship. So I just went ahead and finished the sociology part of it. Um, but I spent much more time in the library reading about reptiles and business than I ever did studying sociology. <laughs> so where did you go after that? Uh, I was drafted to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and I played four years in Pittsburgh. Um, my contract was up. I ended up going to Seattle for the next eight years of my career. And then the last three years, I kind of bounced around between New England and Pittsburgh and then back to New England. Um, like I said, 15 years, I had a wonderful ride. Um, I unfortunately did not win a Super Bowl. I was on two Super Bowl losing teams, which always sucks because every year before they play the current Super Bowl on NFL Network and ESPN, they're always reliving the past Super Bowls. So I have to suffer every year around Super Bowl time with my two Super Bowl losses. Um, I did have you know some personal success on the field, some made Pro Bowls and all Pro teams and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in the end, football is a team sport, and you play to win championships. Um, like I said, I won a, a national championship at the University of Colorado. I won back-to-back -back championships in high school. I won championships in Pop Warner football. So I completely expected to win a Super Bowl championship as well. Um, and much to my disappointment, I have not. 
but you went to two. So that's still pretty So you impressive. went. I, I did go. I did go to two. But, you know, it took me about 10 years after those two Super Bowls to actually be comfortable saying I played in one. Because when you make the Super Bowl, yep. your thought isn't like, oh, we might lose. Your thought is we're, we're going to win the Super Bowl. So <laughs> You uh, worked so hard to get there. Right. So to stand on that field and to watch the Cowboys and to watch the Giants celebrate their win, the podiums come out and they shoot the confetti cannons off. Yeah, I sat there and I watched them celebrate and thought, that's going to be me. Um, it has not happened yet. So close. I think it's probably a long shot at this point. Yes, I'm a yeah. little too old, 51 years old. <laughs> yeah, probably a little late. So what was one of your most favorite memories from playing football? Uh, winning a national championship in college was was awesome. You know, college is, um, as far as a football thing, it's, it's kind of that go-between. Once you get into the NFL, football is a job. Right. Now, everyone leaves there and goes home. You go home to your family. You, you pull out the, the gates of the facility, and football is kind of done for the day. Um, and, you know, But in, in college, you live in the dorms. You, you're with these guys all the time. Um, when I got married, it was my college teammates for the most part who were part of my, you know, my groomsmen. So these were my bros. These were my guys. So to be able to achieve a national championship with those guys who I literally lived with, ate every meal with, um, all that kind of connection makes that achievement so special. Um, cause I was able to do it with those guys who I was such close friends with. And, you know, in fact, even the university of Colorado, we don't call ourselves friends we're brothers, you know, brothers from another mother kind of thing. So that brotherhood of being a Colorado Buffalo um, is something that's been a part of my life ever since I first stepped on that campus in 1988. So to be able to achieve that with my brothers was, you know, probably the highlight of my football career. Oh man, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, so okay. we, we hear about people in the reptile industry all the time, finding super close family and friends like that. Have you had that same experience? Yes, um, I actually did not uh, get a chance to experience it uh, directly. Um, when we had our fire, that was in September. Uh, the, the Tinley Park, the uh, NARBC show is always in October. Right. So at that uh, show, you know, there's always an auction on Saturday night. And uh, I, I guess the organizers of the show and a couple of other major folks within the industry arranged for Robin, my partner, to go up. I did not go to the show. Um, and they had people, you know, who contributed money to try to get Pro Exotics Reptiles back on its feet. Um, so that's, um, that shows, that you know, the solidarity uh, of this community that we are all a part of. And while there's all these separate factions, there's turtle people and tortoise people and frog folks and bug folks and python folks and colubrid folks and venomous folks. I mean, there's all these other, these all these, you know, very different crowds that make up this community that we call the reptile hobby, but we're all in this same community. And one of us suffers or goes down, uh, the community finds a way to pitch in together to help people get back on their feet. So there've been other folks who have had fires and, you know, as chipper reptiles, I've been asked to donate shipping boxes or free shipping so they can send their animals for someone else to take care of for a couple of months while they get on their feet. So there's always some kind of community effort going around and we always took part in those, but it's always funny because in life, sometimes things don't hit you until that shoe is on your foot and mm -hmm. to see the outpouring of concern and money 
and uh, well wishes and literally people calling up Kevin from Nerd saying, hey, man, whatever ball pythons in my collection that you want, just tell me what you want and I'll give them to you. So that kind of uh, brotherhood um, and community is special. And as someone who's taken part in these kind of special groups my entire life, professional football, college football, all that stuff, to be a part of what is the reptile community now, oh yeah, I recognize the specialness and the, the togetherness that we have in this special community. So you're married. I am married. Tell us a little bit about your wife. Okay, um, you know, uh, from a reptile perspective, my wife um, had two rules. She didn't date athletes, which this is before she was my wife. And she never uh, went to the reptile house at the zoo. So um, my charms had to be uh, on uh, 100% to be able to woo her as an athlete in college and as a guy who kept reptiles. Uh, we've been married 28 years now, two wonderful children, 25 and 22. So the, uh, the nest is empty. Uh, the big house has been sold. We're moving on to the next phase of life. Um, yeah, so it's been a, that also has been a, a great ride, 28 years of, uh, of marriage. That's awesome. I was like, you had to be on your top game for that one. I did. I really did. I really did. <laughs> Are your kids interested in the reptiles at all? Um, both of them had reptiles in their rooms growing up. And when they were younger, they enjoyed going to the reptile facility. Um, once they got older, um, I would give them some, some odd jobs. Uh, I can't ever say you know, my wife or either of my two children developed the same passion um, that I had. Um, you know, they're not in the business at all. Uh, my, over the years, my wife's phrase was she gained an appreciation from afar. <laughs> so, uh, which I thought was a great way to put it because, yeah. you know, as, as close as she could get, which was, wasn't super close, she could appreciate what, what I was doing and she could celebrate my successes. And, um, you know, when I would do uh, photographs each year for all the babies and new stuff we were hatching, you know, I could show her the photos and she, you know, was into it and she could remember, oh, wow, I saw last year you were only able to do pastel pies. Now you're doing, you know, pastel firefly pies or whatever the case may be. So um, she was into it. Uh, she enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, and my kids, um, I had to start them low on the totem pole, cleaning out the roach bins and cleaning out the rodents. Um, they didn't love that, but they liked the money that came with it. So tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. Ooh, something about myself that most people don't know. Um, well, I am a broadcaster. Um, I do a daily radio show here in Denver, mainly focused on the Broncos. I do a lot of uh, television uh, here locally, uh, mainly about football, CU football and Bronco football. Um, I do games uh, on the weekends. Um, I've done games for ESPN, for Pac-12 Network. Um, currently, I work for Compass Media, which is a nationwide radio outfit. So if you're ever somewhere driving around and you hear an NFL game on a, on a, on a Sunday and it's not the game for that particular market, it's usually me broadcasting that game. Um, but despite all of that and you know this very public-facing job that I have, uh, dealing with the public as a, you know, shipping company. I'm actually a very quiet, shy dude. So all this right now is just a facade that I've learned <laughs> to put on for cameras and microphones. Uh, the real Chad is just a quiet person. 
Yeah, you really don't social media and stuff a lot, do you? Uh, I, I don't. Sometimes I have to do it as you know, part of the job. Um, yeah. My new marketing person and my new business consultant, who are both more recent hires, are like, what are you doing? You are a celebrity and you don't take advantage of it and you don't post enough and you don't do enough of this. And I have to explain to them, like I explained to you, I'm a quiet, shy person. Yeah. Um, so that's not really my true character, but they are pushing me to make some uh, progress with that. So um, I am a goal for 2022 is number one, to increase uh, my personal and our business social media presence. And then along the way, uh, get a little bit more, um, I guess, individual with some of my broadcasting pursuits, podcasts, YouTube channels, things like that. I certainly got a lot to say, and, and I enjoy talking about sports and animals and all that. I think I've got some very interesting stories. So to be able to set up a camera and tell some stories, I think would be good and interesting. I just got to get over my, 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 my limitations I put on myself. So uh, when I took my first radio uh, job, that was my first broadcasting job that I was offered, you know, the goal wasn't to be on Monday Night Football broadcasting a Monday Night Football game. It was just to begin to gain some comfort, you know, with as a football player, you put on your uniform and you have this helmet and it's this superhero version of yourself. Yeah. But when you do this, what you ladies are doing or you're you know on a television show talking about the Broncos. That is your face. That is your voice. Um, so it took me a while to get over that. But the personal growth of confidence and just the ability to you know control a conversation has been really beneficial for me. I think I'm a better uh, business owner. I'm a better uh, you know husband and a better parent because in the end, all those things require communication. And if you're a shy, quiet person, you don't communicate well. I've become a better communicator by forcing myself to do this stuff. So if you had your own podcast, what would you talk about? Uh, I would do two. Um, I would do an animal uh, podcast. Um, and there are, you know, um, connections between so many of these hobbies that I wouldn't just do reptiles. Uh, I've got this concept uh, called living art. And it's something that's talked about in reptiles. But it applies to so many different uh, animals. Um, I've kept koi in my backyard. Koi are clearly living art. If you're into pigeons, there's literally hundreds of morphs of pigeons. If you're into roses or orchids, there's literally thousands of types of roses that have been developed over the years. So humans, we love beautiful things, but they're not beautiful enough. And the first thing we want to do is figure out how to make it cooler or better or brighter with more contrast. So uh, this living art aspect applies literally to almost every living thing that human beings touch. At some point, we want to change it. You know, yeah, I like those oranges, but it would be better if they peeled easier. You know, I, I like that cow, but I need cows that are able to withstand colder weather where I live rather than those cows that are in Texas. So we are always changing and dealing with animals and plants to our benefit, whether it's to make them prettier or more beneficial or more productive. So all those things are in some form living art. So I would talk about that as my animal podcast or I, not. I will talk about that when I do my animal. It's like that will be an amazing podcast. And I really hope you do it. <laughs> um, I've got 10 episodes already mapped out. I've got the experts who I want to have on to provide the expert side of things. So they're all mapped out. I just got to 
create some time to be able to pull it all off. So what would the other one be? A football focused podcast. Um, and uh, everybody watches, you know, uh, the games on the weekend. And there's usually some kind of something that happens over the weekend that is maybe not fully understood. So the title of that podcast is A Little Knowledge is Dangerous. So you think you know, but I'm going to dive into and explain what really happened and illustrate to you probably how little that you really did know. So um, like, that's, that's the thought like on that one. Bad calls and stuff like that. Bad calls, interpretation of rules, uh, coaching decisions, um, all that kind of more intricate stuff. I mean, there's so much football information out there and there's tons of football podcasts, but I have yet to see one that kind of focuses on uh, that kind of isolated thought. Everyone wants to talk about the spectacular play or deal with the highlights. You can catch highlights on your local newscast or ESPN or go on Twitter or on your phone, catch highlights. That's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But some of this more nuanced, detailed discussion from someone who's lived it, I think is uh, an opportunity for a very unique and cool podcast. So do you have a favorite football memory? That national championship would probably be the favorite team memory. Um, but I've had some pretty special games. Um, as a Pittsburgh Steeler, I had a game where I had uh, four and a half sacks. Um, I had an interception and I led the team in tackles. And it was also my daughter's very first football game that she went to Aww. when she was a baby. So uh, from a personal perspective, uh, that's what I would go with. That was a game against... Um, the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, yeah, four and a half sacks, I think uh, 11 tackles and one interception. Um, so it's kind of a... It was a good game. Yeah, I had <laughs> shifted positions earlier that year, um, and I was replacing somebody um, who was well-known um, at his particular position. Um, and so the process of moving positions, I kind of got lost for a couple of weeks, and that was kind of my coming out party of, here, I'm here, I'm comfortable in this new spot, and look what I can do. Nice. Fabulous. What about um, childhood? Were you interested in football as a child or was it something you developed like later on in childhood or? Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where um, football was just what we did. We'd play sports all the time, but football was certainly the main focus. And um, most of the kids were just a couple years older than me. Mm -hmm. So um, football is a game of toughness. And so if you're a six years old and you want to play with the eight, nine years olds, nine, eight, nine year olds, they're going to tell you, all right, man, look, you can't cry. You can't run home to mom. You can't do any of that <laughs> stuff. So if I wanted to play with those guys, I had to be tough and I had to toughen up. So I think that was like one of those critical, you know, life moments where if I wanted to be able to have some fun, I, I got to toughen up. So um, early on at six years old, I had to learn to, suck it up a little bit um so as kids we played football all the time um and uh everyone had a, a grass front yard so if you're playing football in the streets and you got near the grass you were allowed to be tackled on the grass even though we were playing on the street we could tackle you from the street onto the grass so uh this childhood you know street football quickly evolved into tackle football as soon as you got near someone's front lawn <laughs> That's great. What do you do for working out now? This is going to sound strange. Uh, I do as little as I possibly can to get the results that I'm looking for. Um, 
the days of me doing CrossFit or putting 500 pounds on my back and squatting, all that is over. I did that for most of my life. <laughs> so now I do body weight stuff. I do stuff with bands. I do yoga. Um, I walk my dog. So I try to do low impact stuff that's not going to make me too sore. Um, so I want to look like I once played football, not like I can still play football. So I've dropped <laughs> about 20 pounds since I played. So I'm about 230 now, from a, down from a high about 250. Um, so I still feel like I, you know, I look athletic. I look the part. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, I, I can't tackle anybody anymore. And I am never going to do a bunch of Olympic lifts. Those days are done for me. Yeah, I was going to ask if you still played sports at all, like flag football or anything like that. I did for a while. Um, I did for a while. My agent uh, has like a Thanksgiving game. A lot of athletes take part in. Um, up at CU, they have uh, alumni flag football games. Uh, the radio station has a softball team. And I did that for a while. Um, but I think I'm to the point where my competitive spirit is higher than my pain threshold. And so I'm afraid <laughs> of getting too competitive and hurting myself. Um, I even, uh, I owned a, a place up in the mountains here in Colorado in Winter Park, which is a famous ski location. Uh, most of the time I use it in the summer to ride my downhill mountain bike down the mountain. Um, but even now, I don't even do that anymore because I, I know I'm going to get all like I'm in, you know, you know, some kind of Olympic downhill race and get crazy with it and hurt myself. So my goal right now is I did enough pain to my body when I played not to hurt myself is my goal. So all you've ever done is is the reptiles and football? Or have you had other jobs? Uh, as a kid, uh, I grew up in Southern California, the Greek theater, um, the famous Greek theater. Um, get him to the Greek, that uh, Russell Brand movie with, with uh, yeah. Puff Daddy was in that. Seth, yeah. not, not Seth Rogen. What's the kid who was in that? Um, I'm forgetting his name. Blank. Yeah, but anyway, the Greek Theater is a famous you know, concert venue in Southern California. Um, I worked there. I uh, parked cars. Um, I worked as a busboy at the Altadena Country Club, a couple blocks away from my house where I grew up. Um, but outside of those kind of odd job kind of things, I have played football and I have been in the reptile slash animal biz in some way or the other. I have not had a, another job outside of football, broadcasting, or reptile-related businesses as an adult. These are the only things I've, I've ever done. Growing up, you were close with your family, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what's one of your favorite memories as a child? Uh, I've got seven brothers and sisters. Oh, wow. Holy cow. That's a yeah, lot. Um, not <laughs> you guys in all, all of these children. Yeah. Not all of them are from my mother, only my younger brother and I. Um, so my, that, that temptation song, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Uh, uh -huh. yeah, my, my dad certainly, uh, rolled around quite a bit. Um, so my favorite memories are those rare instances, uh, where we were all, eight of us were together. Um, so, you know, I had my brothers and sisters, sub brothers and sisters and full brother who, you know, I grew up with um, at the same time for all eight of us to be together was some of those, you know, fondest childhood memories. Do you still get to do that now? I do. Uh, one brother has passed, um, but uh, we get together uh, purposely for about a week every 10 years, uh, get together at my parents' house and all hang out. And at this point there's, 
there's, you know, there's, they have kids. I've got kids. Some of their kids have kids. So there's grandkids involved as well. So the, the eight of us has grown to like, by the time we're, you know, when everybody's in the room, it's about 30 people. So it's a pretty amazing get together. That's awesome. So what do your kids do? Uh, my daughter is a copywriter for the ad industry. Um, so she works for a, a big ad firm. She currently works on Mars Candy. So if you see those pop-ups in stores or a Mars commercial or a print ad, chances are those are her words. Oh, and then okay. my son uh, just finished school up in December and has been working for me at Shippy Reptiles as a customer service uh, agent. Um, so he's getting his feet wet in the shipping business. So what did they both go to school? Well, she went to school for advertising, I'm assuming. What did he go to school for? Psychology, um, which is, I think, sometimes helpful when you're doing customer service with folks who uh, are a little uh, upset. So the ability to bring them down and give them some information that they need to hear. So do your parents still live in California? They do. They do. Um, and they are um, still together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, great relationship. Um, they are like the relationship goals, as the kids say, goals. Yep. Um, and my dad is in his 80s now, but he still paints the house once a year and does far too much yard oh. work and, and all of that. So he's kind of my my role model. You know, I don't like I said, I'm not putting squat bars on my back anymore. But uh, um, when I'm working in the yard, I can I can get after it. I'm, I'm inspired by my dad, James Brown. So, what did you want to be when you grow up? As a kid, I wanted to be a vet. I either wanted to be a professional athlete or I wanted to be a vet. Um, so, uh, hey, how about that? Life brought that to me. Um, yeah. so it became, I grew up, you know, because you can wish all you want to be a professional athlete, but uh, so much of that is literally just so far outside of your control. There's just certain physical prerequisites yeah. that need to happen for you to be able to play whatever sport you wish to be. If you want to be in the NBA, yeah, there have been players who've been, you know, five, six and five, nine, but most of them are, you know, six, five or taller. Um, can you play professional football at, you know, five feet and a hundred pounds? Maybe you can kick the ball, but you can't play linebacker. So to be able to be six, three, 250 pounds. Thanks mom and dad. You know, I won the genetic lottery. I appreciate that. Thanks for hooking me up. And then the, the animal thing, um, you know, I guess I would have assumed animals would always be a part of my life. Like I said, I thought I would be a vet. Um, so now I, you know, I get to work with animals every day other people's animals, my animals. So I'm still in that space of that childhood goal. Nice. Do you have a favorite animal? Um, wow. Gosh, how deep do you want to go? Um, I think like, what's your favorite species of snake? <laughs> all right. So I'll go with her question first and I'll go with uh, yours second, okay. Rachel. Um, cats are amazing animals. I mean, mm -hmm. house cats, tigers, Cats are just so, well, I guess it's a podcast. They're just badass. So, I mean, they're so awesome. They are. You know, the claws, they can climb trees, they can leap, they can run. Uh, they're so strong, they can kill. Uh, you know, some of the uh, societal nature of the cats that work and live in packs and all that. I mean, it's just so much that are that is awesome about cats. You know, the fastest living land animal is a cat, you know, the cheetah. Um, so they're just, they're so versatile. They can live in the snow like a Siberian tiger. They can live in the rainforest like panthers and pumas and, 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 and jaguars. Um, they can be super adaptable. A leopard can go from the grasslands to the jungles 
to the savannas in a single day. I mean, cats are just, wow, mind-blowing to me. Um, even when I look at a house cat, I see it as someone's pet, but I also see the, you know, the inner lion or the inner tiger where that animal comes from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you gave me excited about animals. This could be a four-hour podcast. <laughs> um, Do you have any cats? I don't. I have never kept a cat as a pet. Oh. I, for me personally, I don't think they make good pets. I, I suppose other people oh, wow. do. Um, so I have a Maine Coon and she's like a dog. Left like a cat awesome. like a dog. She's I've got favorite. a little bit of a, a clean thing and I've been to other people's houses where cats will jump on the kitchen counter. Oh no. Um, my kitchen counter is a, is a sacred space Same. for food. You don't put your backpack up there. You don't <laughs> sit your butt up there. You know, so I operate with very distinct clean germ-free places and cats because they can go wherever they want to go for the most part um it wouldn't be the pet for me so despite being like my favorite animal i recognize it's not the pet for me um but at the same time i think elephants are also incredible and i know they're not pets for anybody (laughs) (laughs) what a cool pet though (laughs) yes they would be uh my favorite species of snake um there is nothing more regal and elegant in the reptile space more than a Boland's python. Boland's pythons are just, oh my goodness, the iridescence, the beauty. Um, but once you get to raise up Boland's pythons as I have, mm-hmm. um, the temperament, the, the confidence um, that, they, uh, that they exhibit, they're never afraid. They're always very deliberate with their movements they just have an aura of, of, of you know, regalness to them. Um, I, I, yeah, it, you would be hard pressed to get me to put uh, another snake species above a Boland's python. And I've kept, you know, virtually every colubrid that's available in the, you know, the reptile trade. Uh, I've bred most spo- species of boas, boas and pythons. Um, but for me, nothing tops a Boland's python. You make me want one now. I was like to say, I never wanted one, and now I do. Oh, <laughs> now I kind of want one. If you ever have an opportunity to get close to one and handle one, or even if you just can only look at it through glass, just take a moment and look at it and watch it, and particularly if you get to hold it, you know, because as reptile people, sometimes we can get a little blasé about holding things. Yeah. Um, but if you hold a Boland's python and you just watch how it moves through your hands, and what it's looking at and what it's paying attention to. Oh, wow, you're actually thinking. Oh, wow, you have such an aura of confidence. Your first thought is not to go ball python and, and hide your head. Your first thought is, let me see what that is over there. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a connection between the snake and the keeper that I think very few snakes can actually uh, have that level of connection and equal. That's what you you were talking about, Kevin McCurley earlier. So my favorite thing to watch his videos of are him working with the monitors. Like that blows my mind how smart and um, social they can be. Like that that's kind of what this reminds me of. Is, is well, we we work with monitors as well at Pro Exotics, and um, over the years, you know, we we bred hundreds and produced hundreds and hundreds of Aki monitors, which mm-hmm. I still think is okay. probably the best pet monitor. You know, yeah. Kevin's a little bit more focused on the water monitors. Yeah. Um, you know, we had an opportunity to buy some of those first albinos when they first came in the country. Um, I suppose I misunderstood the market because I thought, who's going to want this giant lizard? Um, <laughs> water monitors are awesome and super intelligent. I think all monitor species are. 
Um, so the, the type of interaction you can have with those is um, maybe the, the ultimate reptile connection yeah. that you can have. Um, I think water monitors, just because they're bigger and a little bit more confident, give a little bit more of that. But when we were working with green tree monitors, um, and at the time I probably had somewhere between 12 and 15 adults, I was the largest captive producer of green tree monitors outside of Indonesia on the planet. I could literally put my arm in the cage and one of them would crawl up my arm and hang on my shoulder while I serviced the cage. And then I could reverse it and he knew to climb back down my arm and go into the cage. That kind of interaction and learned behavior um, is amazing to have that you can do that with a species, you know, to have a connection with mammals, we're mammals. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, dog, cat, Not so foreign. Yeah, yeah, elephant. It all makes sense. All you know, we're all mammals. You know, we're, we're we're similarly, you know, evolved. But to do that with a species that is just so completely foreign to us and still have that connection, yeah, that's one of those most special reptile experiences that you can have. So um, that's actually why I fell in love with Lichianus geckos, because I had one as a pet and she was just like that. Like she would actually whistle at me to come get her out of her cage. Nice. And, like she wanted out. She wanted to be social. I mean, and she would let me know if she didn't. I would go to take her out and she'd be like, no, nah, not today. Right. You know, right. I, I kind of described her as a cat. She was very um, kind of cat like when she wanted attention. She was going to like pester you <laughs> until you took her out. So um so I totally understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah, I've got a 25-year-old male Lichianus that I bought from Alan Rapashi when he first started producing those. Um, and I've got a bunch of others as well that I've raised up in the last couple of years. Um, but that animal is one of my favorite animals because it's 25 years old, because he knows me so well, and I have this great connection with him. And because Lichianus are vocal, um, yeah. yeah. So if I've got him in hand and he wants to be let down, all right, pay attention to the soft whistle because then it's going to go from a soft whistle to a louder whistle. Then and then you're, growling at you. Then he's going to growl or bark yeah. at you. Yeah. At that point, yes, put me down, man, before I bite you. So. Yeah, I think folks outside of the hobby don't have uh, quite the understanding of the connection. It's just a snake in a cage, just a lizard in a, in a glass box. Uh, no, uh, at this point, the hobby has evolved enough where we're no longer just trying to keep things alive or figure out how to breed them, we're learning about their behaviors and how to elicit those behaviors as keepers and how to uh, enrich their lives with connections to us. And they can actually be as bonded to us as we are to them. So uh, yeah, I think that's something that's lost on the general public at this point. I, I think there is a, a bit of a dividing line as far as that behavior in animals. Um, the animal has to be a little bit larger, typically. Yeah. And the animal maybe that exists uh, where there's not too many predators for it in the wild. There's not too many predators out there for, say, Lichianus. Um, so they can exhibit that kind of comfortable behavior because they're not always concerned for their life. Um, in a saltwater aquarium, you know, certain angelfish and things like that can have that connection with you. Certain tangs because they're kind of the top dog in their area of the reef versus like a little damsel or a little wrasse that's always hiding in little corners. Um, they just, I don't think they can ever get over that fear of something coming to eat them versus an angelfish, which, you know, they pair up for life sometimes and they own this huge block of the reef and everything runs away from them. Those are the species that you can really develop those, uh, recognizable relationships with. 
now I need fish. <laughs> you do. <laughs> I do. I need yes. fish now. Yes. So, so I've had some very interesting fit, like on a whole not reptile subject. I've had some very interesting fish. So we had, um, we had a tang that actually acted a lot like my lychee. Like he liked to be scratched. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, but we would we would keep a toothbrush beside the tank and um, just to clean the the tank off with or whatever. And we stuck the toothbrush in the tank one day and he came over and was like rubbing himself on it. We were like, what is going on? <laughs> so he, he like, he had an itch and he liked to be, liked to be scratched. So he would come up and when we got home and you'd stick the toothbrush in there and he'd play with the toothbrush and rub himself on it. And we were like, we have the weirdest animals. <laughs> That's great. Like, all are, of our friends are like, you have the strangest pets. That's awesome. There are certain types of uh, koi fish that are known to be more personable and, and friendly than others. Um, so sometimes as a koi keeper, you have one of those in your pond, not necessarily because they're the most beautiful, um, but they train the other fish that coming up to that hands, not, it's not only gonna bring you food, but you'll be pet and you'll be rubbed and all that. So, uh, you know, when I had my pond, I could literally sit by my pond and the fish knew to come up to me, even if there wasn't food involved, I could scratch them under their chin and pet them mm -hmm. as they're going by. And the, both of us, or me and them, us together, we always enjoyed those interactions. Yeah. That's awesome. So I, I've also kept sharks, kept in bread sharks. And nice. um, those, that's hands down my favorite animal. But um, they're super social and really like people interaction. Um, just small reef sharks. And they, they don't have a lot of predators and stuff in the wild either, like you said. But sharks are just really smart anyway right but um yeah that you can hand feed them and pet them and pick them up and it's like they don't care nice very so. cool did i know that <laughs> i was like i just had my first interaction with a dolphin on a cruise i went on, on a couple of weeks ago and i had never done any kind of dolphin interaction before and did it it was probably one of the most amazing things i've ever done yeah um <laughs> If I could be any animal in the wild, I would be a killer whale, which is just a giant dolphin, essentially. Yep. Yep. Um, that's what I would be. Um, this I'd weird be a big cat. Animal <laughs> fantasy world we're going down right now is cracking me up. Yes, that was perfect. Yes, Chad the orca is what I would be out there with my pod, and I'd be leading them across the oceans to our feeding grounds kind of thing. Where would you live? Uh, you know, I, I do like salmon. So, so you know, the the... The orca pods that live in the you know the uh, the northwest off the coast of Washington and the places like that, they're typically salmon feeders. Um, but you know how could you help but not like? Now I feel sorry for the baby seals when the orcas eat the baby seals and the wildlife documentaries. But obviously as an orca, I would have a very different feeling. Yeah. And when you see them like smack the baby seals with their tails and like play with the baby seal, like punting them to each other, um, yeah, I feel sorry for the baby seals. But I recognize how awesome. Orcas have so much fun. They can play with their food. It's pretty cool. And they're the they're like the top predator. So that totally fits you. Like being super competitive. <laughs> like who else is going to stand in your way? Because they right. don't. I mean, yeah, yeah. no one's going to stand up to them. You'd be at the top. Orcas aren't the concerned thing. about anybody else, anybody no. in the ocean other than man. That's the no. only enemy in the ocean. No. So if you could live any place else, where would you live? Like as a human, not <laughs> not a fish. <laughs> Not Chad's animal fantasy. Uh, if Chad could live any place on the planet, um, wow. Japan. Why? I love Japan. 
Um, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a foodie. They do food at an incredibly mm. high level in Japan. I believe there's more uh, Michelin five star restaurants in Japan than any other city. Um, they do a really good job with the food there. Um, I like the culture. I like the efficiency of it all. Um, I, I like the 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 work ethic and the the detail of the people. Um, everyone takes pride in their job. It's an insult if you want to tip somebody at the restaurant. Uh, are you saying I need extra money to do my job? No, this is part of my character and who I am. So that kind of mindset uh, is very awesome to me. I, I enjoy my time there. So uh, that's my that's my answer for today. Tomorrow may be different, but that's my answer for today. <laughs> so where would your wife want to live? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, we have a place in Arizona that she loves because she loves being warm. So do I. I'm like a reptile. I'm solar powered. Um, so I split time between uh, Colorado and Arizona. Colorado is where the work is. Arizona where the is where the relaxing is. Um, I would say someplace warm for her, uh, probably with a beach. Um, gosh, together we've you know we've gone to, we've been on the beach in Costa Rica. We've been on the beach in in Thailand. We've been on the beaches in Hawaii. Um, I'm sure she would pick one of those warm beachy spots. Can't say which one though. What's so? What's your favorite place that you've ever traveled to? Japan. 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 Yeah, like I said, I can't wait to go back. You know, I've, I've been in Africa. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I've been throughout Indonesia. I've been really lucky and traveled, you know, quite a bit around the world. Now, I've been to China and Korea and Hong Kong and um, Spain and <clears throat> lots of very cool, awesome travels. Been to Costa Rica a couple of times. Um, yeah, but when the world opens back up, which, it, you know, slowly is at this point, I am looking forward to getting back to Japan as soon as possible. I would say Brazil would be number two. I, I enjoyed my time in Brazil and I'm looking forward to going back a, a second time. I went uh, fishing on the Amazon, so I didn't go to a, <clears throat> any of the big cities. Um, flew into Manaus, which is the largest city kind of at the, the foot of the Amazon, the base of the Amazon, and you go on your excursions from there. Um, but the Brazilian people were awesome. The food was great, very important for me, and the fishing was great too. Yeah, so Jack and I are foodies too. Like we just I love, love food. food in general. But when you have someone that power lifts, they just like to eat. <laughs> like athletes, I think, are all foodies because you have to eat so much anyway. So, yeah, I was like, we centered around food as a family. Like we always were gathered. My my mom's side of the family is Irish and Italian. And so like that was a big influence. There was lots of food, lots of loud talking and everybody was around the table. And that was growing up for me. So. Yeah, I'm lucky as well. I've got uh, great childhood memories of you know gathering around the table. Um, outside of football practice, there was no excuse for me not to be home by six o'clock for dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, I have literally run across the city of Pasadena trying to make it home by the you know, mandated six o'clock. Chad better be in this door because that's what time dinner is. Yep. Um, so yeah, food has always been, I suppose, an important part of my life. Either because I I needed to, to get big enough to play football. Or, you know, I'm an adult and I just love really high-end sushi. Or that childhood mandate is your butt will be in this house by 6 o'clock for dinner. Don't yeah. make that mistake. Yeah. Speaking of, what was your the your favorite lesson learned as a child? Uh, this is uh, a lesson that I learned. I didn't have the phrase in mind. I didn't get the phrase until... Um, I started playing football professionally. Hard work pays. It's just a pretty simple equation. 
you put hard work into something, it's going to pay off. Maybe not immediately, maybe not when you want it to, maybe, you know, maybe not even in that particular arena where you're working, but hard work is going to pay off at some point. Um, and sometimes you maybe you're just practicing for something to be able to do something else. So there's no real direct connection necessarily with the hard work and, you know, on Saturday, this is going to happen for you. Mm -hmm. But if you put in hard work to the reptile biz, you know, you may be, you may end up where Justin is. You put hard work into a shipping company, you may be where, where I am. You put hard work into football, maybe like some of my incredible teammates who've made the Hall of Fame. But hard work pays off every time, every time. That's not necessarily when you want it to. Yep, that's very true. So you've met a lot of people, um, obviously, doing the football thing and broadcasting. Who has been your favorite celebrity? Ooh, favorite celebrity. Favorite celebrity that I've met, I'm, I'm assuming, correct? Yes. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't necessarily think of football players as celebrities. Um, I recognize that some of them, their fame transcends the football space. Um, being a teammate of Tom Brady's, I can see why people love Tom. Tom is an awesome dude. He was literally the best teammate I've ever played with um, as far as like being a big name player. Um, but outside of that, Tom is just a great guy. Um, and, you know, when you meet certain people, they just have a vibe that kind of comes off them that you recognize, oh, this is why life has brought you all that it's brought you because you have a vibe that other people don't possess. So, you know, when you meet The Rock, you know, and he's just being very casual, Dwayne Johnson, but he's also The Rock at the same time because The Rock is just an extension of Dwayne Johnson's personality. Yeah. Um, you go, okay, I see why, you know, you are in the position in life that you are in. You just have an energy and a vibe that just comes off of you that you walk into a room, people know you're here. People want to listen to what you have to say. You are may not necessarily be the physically biggest man in the room, but you are the biggest personality. They have the most charisma in this room, and it just exudes off of you, and people want to be close to that. So to experience the, the, the vibe of the rock um, was certainly very cool. And I've met other celebrities who also do that thing, um, and it's an amazing thing that they have because, um, you know, I would say 99.9% .9 of people on the planet just don't possess that skill to be able to do that, and they're able to do that at at will and with a complete set of ease because he wasn't putting on a show. He was just being who he was, and I was like, that's that's awesome, man. That's I see cool. what you're doing over there. I, I, don't, I don't possess that skill set. But I see that you do, and you are just playing that to a T. You go. No. I've met, you know, lots of actors and uh, singers, yeah. and sometimes the creative folks, um, you know, aren't as interesting in real life. the The persona that they put on to be an actor or whatever—that's what that skill that they have—that's what interests us. But the actual person behind that, you know. Uh, person who we see on screen or we see on stage is not necessarily as charismatic or as funny or as interesting. Um, they're still awesome, cool people. Um, I, I enjoy humans on every level. I think all of us have a, a level of humanity that needs to be understood and respected. Um, but that, that, that thing that some people have, other people who you would assume would have that, 
you go, oh, that's interesting. You're like the smallest person in this room. And if I didn't recognize <laughs> you from that movie or that TV show or you being in that band, I would never suspect that you're connected to that personality because apparently that's just something that you put on and off. That's not really who you are. Because you, you said that you bred some animals that no one else had yet. So what were those? I'm always uh, well, interested in who does the firsts. <laughs> well, you know, obviously, you know, in ball pythons, you know, we're all breeding the same ball pythons, but producing yeah. new yeah. and unique morphs. Yeah. Um, I was the first, at least in, from my recollection, the first documented person to breed Savu pythons um, when they first came in, um, working with imported animals that weren't already gravid, but to breed those and hatch those out. Um, I sold those babies to the uh, San Antonio Zoo, so that was a very fun feather in my cap. Um, I was not the first person to breed green tree pythons, but I, for a while I was a, not green tree pythons, sorry, green tree monitors. Um, but I was the largest producer for a, quite a while. So some other stuff that maybe had been bred overseas, I was the first U.S. person to breed them some monitor species, things like that. Um, what was the one that you just beat your head against the wall about? Bones pythons, you know. Um, I, they're... I consider myself to be pretty good at reading the animals. They communicate, um, you know, whether you're receptive to it or not, mm -hmm. how they're using their cage, you know, are they up high, are they down low, are they near the heat, are they away from the heat, is female wrapped around the water bowl, um, you know, are they spending, you know, all their time as far away from the heat source as possible. So once you begin to read these cues and you understand the reproductive process, um, I think most reptiles are fairly simple. Um, but Bowen's pythons, um, that is a tough nut to crack and far keepers far better than I have been just as, you know, disappointed in their results as I have. So every year we got our Bowen's pythons to females to grow follicles, our males to copulate with our females, those follicles to begin to grow. And they would get to about 30 millimeters on the ultrasound. And we would think, okay, now this, this is when that ovulation process is going to happen. And the same crushing disappointment every year happened, those follicles would then shrink. We never were able to get our females to ovulate. Um, I have a friend in Florida who got a couple of uh, breedings from his Bowlands pythons, uh, very low uh, hatch rate with those eggs. Most of the eggs were slugs. Um, the eggs that he did put in the incubator, only a few of those eggs hatched. So it's hard to really even call that success. Um, so uh, I know Quetzal down in um, Costa Rica has bred some uh, Bolins, but I think he had a pretty low level of success. There's a couple of keepers in you know, maybe uh, Sweden or Holland who have been able to do it more than once. Um, but outside of you know, Bolins pythons being kept outside in Indonesia, I don't know of anyone on the planet who has had sustained, repeated success um, and thinking of success as, you know, hatching more than half your eggs, more than half of the eggs being good when they come out of the female. Um, and we have tried everything possible. Um, I've kept my boneless pythons in the same room as, as all my other boas and pythons. Same results. In the winter, I put my boneless pythons uh, in rooms where I kept my Gila monsters and I was hibernating them. And they would get down to as low as the high 30s at night. Um, same results. I took a stack of vision cages, six vision cages, the six foot vision cages and cut holes through all of those vision cages so the, the females could go wherever she wanted in those six cages. She could be down on the ground, which was on a concrete floor 
up against the coldest wall of our facility. She could be on top under a basking light. She could be under a heat panel. She could be in a cage that was literally stuffed with bags and bags of sphagnum moss to be as humid as she could ever want to be. I gave her every choice I could think a, a reptile could ever want. She could be hot, she could be cold, she could be dry, she could be wet, she could be dark, she could be in the light. She could be anywhere she wanted, the exact same results. Tried that for four years in a row. Um, so yeah, it was uh, disappointing to say the, the least. Yeah. Have you, so in all of your travels, have you gone to actually go see um, reptile environments on purpose? Oh yes. Um, in Costa Rica, uh, gone out and actually seen boas in, in the wild. Obviously, lots of iguanas in Costa Rica. Um, in uh, the Amazon, I uh, saw reptiles out in the wild. Didn't see any snakes. Saw lots of lizards. Saw caiman. Um, saw lots of turtles, but did not see any snakes on the Amazon. And then in Indonesia, actually went traveling specifically to Indonesia to uh, look for reptile species. And I was part of the trip with Cameron Tepedlin from Bushmaster Reptiles. Uh, Dave Barker from VPI Pythons, Dave and Tracy Barker. Uh, we helped bring back uh, a new species of python or a new species of python to Western science. Obviously, the people on the island of Halamahera were familiar with this python before we were, um, but we brought that back and documented it to Western science. Uh, Dave ended up naming the species. Uh, it's it's Tracy I, named after his wife, Tracy. Um, I've actually got four Halamahera scrub pythons in my reptile room right now. I'm trying to be the first, which I think would be the first non-zoo U.S. breeding of Halamahera scrub pythons. So I'm trying to be the first guy there. My animals are still young. I'm probably at least three or four years away. Um, but that was a very, very cool trip to, to Indonesia. And to see that collecting process um, that they go through, you know, Indonesia's got literally 10,000 islands. And you've got to go back in like the old naturalist journals from like the 1700s and the 1800s to like read up what is on each of these islands. And that's how we chose to go to the island of Halamahera. And then once you get there, there's typically somebody on the islands who is a skin guy who, you know, sells the, the reptile skins for whatever purposes there may be. Yeah. So we went to the skin guy and looking at this giant stack of skins and we're going through them. They're all reticulated python skins. And then, whoa. What is that? So is it is it a different species of python or is it just some odd morph of reticulated python? So we keep on going through this pile of skins and then there's another one. This is weird. And then we really began to look at the scales and compare the scales to the uh, skins of the reticulated pythons and recognize, oh, because this is a different scale pattern. It's more than just a different pattern itself. The scale patterns are different. So we talked to the guy, the skin guy, and he says, oh, these occur on the other side of the island. They live in the caves. They eat the bats. Okay. So now we've made a plan with our guy to go try to catch some uh, Halamahera pythons in the wild. We go to the cave. We see shed skins. We see uh, a lot of reptile poop, a lot of snake poop, but no live Halamahera pythons. Uh, the morning uh, that we are to catch the ferry back from Halamahera back to Jakarta, is uh, when the the skin guy's assistant comes running to our hotel. We caught one for you. We got one for you. So that's when we were able to take the pictures of the first uh, Halamahera scrub python, you know, photos of all ever taken. Um, and we took that, that specimen back to the farm in Jakarta. It was then shipped back to Dave in Texas, where he took it to 
I think the University of Texas Herpetology Department, and that department um, did the scale counts and all that documentation stuff and naming stuff. And so, yeah, I was on that trip to help discover a new species of python. How cool is that? That is so amazing. That is awesome. Right. So, yeah, I would have killed to go anywhere with Dave and Tracy on one of these trips. Like, I'm so jealous every time I hear somebody, they're like, oh, yeah, I went with Dave and Tracy. And we went and called stuff in the So Tracy wasn't there. It was was just Dave. Tracy wasn't there. It was just Dave. But Dave, as you can imagine, is just a, a literal fountain of reptile and even animal knowledge overall um his extensive work at zoos and all that so to you know to be on a six-hour car ride which sucks but at least you get to do it with dave barker and he can just (laughs) blow your mind with animal information for six hours it was a literally a a a travel treat for me how tell people how to get a hold of you even though you're not very socially (laughs) (laughs) active uh you can follow me on twitter at Chad Brown 94. That was my number when I played football 94. So at Chad Brown 94. It's mainly going to be sports content uh, related, um, but there is some occasional reptile stuff on there. I'll post my animals, particularly my green tree pythons when they're breeding or when they're laying eggs. Um, so that's uh, that's how to reach me on social media. Um, we are expanding our presence for you know shipping reptiles and all pro shipping um, on social media. So hopefully soon. Um, there'll be, well, there is a Ship Your Reptiles Instagram and Ship Your Reptiles Facebook page. You can go there and certainly contact me there or just email me at chad at allproshipping.com. Um, I'm always down to help somebody out with any shipping questions they might have, or if they've got a question about some of the species that I've worked with in the past. Uh, I, I love helping out reptile folks. Well, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much yes. for coming on. This Thank has been you. a blast. We're right on. We can totally um, do this again. Yes. You know, if, if, you guys, if you come up with a list of questions, uh, let's yeah. do part two. This was fun for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. This was yes. great. Thank you so much. All right. Good talking to you guys. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Chad. Bye. Thank you all for joining us on the In Blue podcast on the Reptile Gumbo Network with Chad Brown. What an amazing show. Heidi, it was great to see you. I'll see you this weekend at a show. All right. Have a good one. You too.